Chicago. It's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. What's up, everyone? My name is Raj Nation, founder and chief pitch artist at Startup Hype Man, where we help startups not suck at how they pitch themselves. How? By making sure their audience sees them not as the best, but as the only. And this podcast is the only show where you will hear from leaders in the startup ecosystem sharing a piece of their heart, their mind, and their story on how they are charting their own path, growing their companies, and choosing not to play the game, but to change the game. Before we get going, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Also, head over to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to our Point of View letter, where we share original articles, insights, and resources all to help you become the only of your industry. All right, get your popcorn ready and get hyped. It's showtime. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Boulder, Colorado, and currently residing in Marin County, California. He is the founder and CEO of Founder Suite. Please welcome. Nathan Becker. Whoop, whoop. I wish I had an air horn right now. <laughs> <laughs> he is Nathan Becker, as I mentioned, founder and CEO of Founder Suite. If you haven't heard of Founder Suite, well, maybe you've been living under a rock recently. Founder Suite is a better way to raise capital, helping bring structure, speed, and efficiency to the fundraising and investor relations process through their fundraising deal processing platform. Now, Founder Suite has been around for a handful of years. They've, on just a million dollars of of money raised themselves, they've been able to help other startups raise over $3 billion off of their platform. They've got 3,000 monthly active startups who come in and use their platform every single month to help manage their investor deal process, build out their investor pipeline, and ultimately raise capital. And all of that said, our topic today is something that Nathan's got a ton of experience in. So from one Nathan to another, my last name being Nathan, your first name being Nathan. Nathan, welcome to the show. Our topic today is building an investor pipeline. Why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. First of all, um, why is it on my mind? It's all, all that I've thought about for the past you know, eight years, basically. Um, and why is it important? Because you're an entrepreneur, you want to raise money. There are, it's not rocket science. Anyone can learn how to do it. Um, but there are a lot of nuances to the fundraising process. There are a lot of ways to do it right and to do it wrong. And one of the very right ways to do it is to build a pipeline of investors, meaning a good solid target list of investors, and then run a process meaning you run a really efficient kind of sales process to get momentum going for your deal. So that's the right way to do it. So that's why it's always on my mind. And we've been building out our product line to to kind of match the right way of fundraise. We're going to dive all into that whole process. And I should say, not just building building an investor, but building a, a successful investor pipeline at that. Now, before we do that, let's peel the onion back a little bit and learn more about Nathan Becker himself. And just a quick disclaimer on this episode, both Nathan and I are both potentially uh, uh, dealing with COVID and COVID-like symptoms in the moment. So apologies if any throats sound scratchy or if any audio quality is a little bit worse. Um, not, we're both uh, in our self-quarantine settings at the moment. So diving in, I want to learn more about you, Nathan. Um, you know, We look at entrepreneurship generally as the road less traveled. And I think You've actually literally not only taken the road less traveled, but you've also taken the height or the distance less traveled. Um, And that is in both uh, traveling Nicaragua by motorcycle, as well as uh, hiking Mount Kilimanjaro, which is over 19,000 feet high. We can start with either of those, with either Nicaragua or Mount Kilimanjaro. Let's go go with with Nicaragua first by motorcycle. Tell me, um, traveling that country on a bike, what did you learn about people? Yeah. Oh, gosh. That was such a fun trip. Um, you know, Nicaragua was gorgeous. I'd never been there before. First time we got down there with my girlfriend at the time, soon to become wife, and my my younger brother. And my brother and I have been riding dirt bikes and motorcycles basically since we were like 10 years old. And so we're like, 
let's do this on bikes. And we found, uh, we found a place that rents these. I think they're like Chinese made dirt bikes. They weren't the best quality bikes, but you know, they did the trick and we toured around, um, got out on the lake, uh, did the coastal stuff where all the coastal surfer spots, you know, where the surfers hang out in different little coastal spots. What do we learn about people? I mean, people are so friendly and warm there. You know, Nicaragua, if I don't, I'm not deep into the history, but Nicaragua had a long period of, of, um, of war and guerrilla fighting. And, you know, it was a troubled country for many, many years. Yet you go there now, it's just the warmest, kindest, nicest people. So I guess the lesson there is how resilient a population can be. And I hope some of that maybe applies to what we're seeing in Eastern Europe now with, um, you know, war in Ukraine and Russia. That the good news is like these embattered populations can can bounce back and find joy and happiness and open up their markets, you know, fairly quickly. Yeah. One of the things actually that I've been talking about, so I also teach yoga on the side. And one of the things I have talked about in several classes over the last couple of months is the concept of resilience and how mm-hmm. people in Ukraine are exhibiting that, I think, you know, as good as or better than anyone can. And I think, as you mentioned, people of Nicaragua are doing that or have done that as well. And I think resilience is another just strong entrepreneur trait that exists. Yes. Now, you also hiked Mount Kilimanjaro, right? that's second highest, maybe the highest peak in the world. Uh, I don't know if Everest is, is Everest higher. Everest is higher. Everest is up in the 20, 26, 27. I'm not sure exactly. Kilimanjaro is the highest peak in Africa. So, sure. um, so you've done Kilimanjaro, right? So let's talk about resilience, right? What did, what did that trek literally, (laughs) what did that journey teach you about resilience? Yes. Like you do something like that. It took, I want to say it was like five days of hiking nonstop and you're starting at a pretty low elevation, little, you know, thousand feet above sea level. And you're slowly making your way through jungles and the, the terrain changes, right? You're going through jungles with monkeys. Then the, it starts to thin out and ultimately you're ending up on a glacier, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going from jungles to snow in, in five days, all on foot. And it's it's super exhausting and the closer you get to the summit the less oxygen there is and so it becomes even harder right so when you're at elevation you you start a base camp on the final night of the ascent which i think is about 15,000 feet it's already hard to breathe at 15,000 feet so you're not really sleeping you're not getting much you know rest or recovery for your big ascent the next day and you know I think almost an entrepreneurial lesson is to make it to the top, you have to go slowly and steadily and just really methodically. If you try and go too fast, you'll actually get a cardiopulmonary embolism, which your lungs flew up, fill up with fluid and you, you know, possibly die. Quite a few people have died because they try and go too fast. Right. So the, 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 they have a phrase poly poly, which is just kind of one step in front of the other, keep going. You start off, I want to say like midnight, the final day to make the ascent. And so you're hiking for close to 20 hours by the time you make it back down. And it's incredibly grueling. But once you're on the top and you're 3,000 feet above the clouds, just standing on this mountain peak, it's the most exhilarating feeling in the world. Um, So it's kind of like entrepreneurship, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, especially because, right, we hear so often like the importance of go fast, scale at all costs, growth hack, all that stuff. And you're kind of like your lesson out of this is like, well, maybe there's a way to be methodical about this and not just blitz scale no matter what. Yeah. And and maybe I'm biased on this because that's frankly how I've also built Foundersuite. We've raised a little money and we've gone kind of slow and steady in the context of startup development. You know, every year we release a new product, kind of incremental features throughout the year. I mean, it's not the blitz scaling, you know, hyper growth of, of some firms, but I don't know if every startup has to be that. So not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I think there are some markets like, uh, like the markets that Lyft and Uber in that are, are one or two people are going to take it all. Other markets where there's going to be quite a few players. And if you're in a, a market where, you know, there can be multiple companies that are successful and win, 
a slower methodical pace can actually, I think, be an advantage because you're more mindful of the, of what you're building, of how you're interacting with customers, right? It's just more holistic in my view. So, yeah. Well, and, and one more thing I'm curious to learn about your Kilimanjaro experience. So three years ago, my mom actually, at the age of 60, climbed, uh, did base camp Everest, which is oh, wow. crazy because, I, I mean, in my 30s, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> um, and one of the things she talked about uh, was actually, she was like, you know, you know, you're supposed to eat, but you get to a point where you don't even want to eat because it's just the same food over and over again. And I think there's a certain level in, in that, you know, slow in, the, in that being steady to keep climbing. There's also an element of having to convince yourself, is it worth it? Cause I know she was like, I could just tell from talking to her how like, you know, the altitude starts to mess with you. Yes. And then you actually like, maybe she was like, you know, five or six times I was like, ah, just screw it. I don't even need to finish this. So did like, did you have a similar experience and, and maybe even in the resilience aspect of like this idea of being talked, you know, you talking yourself into giving up and then having to overcome that chatter. What was that? like? Yeah, absolutely. I, everything you just said. And I think it's, it's comparable. The, the altitude starts to mess with you. You start to lose your out, you lose your appetite. You start to lose the ability to sleep. Like I mentioned, your judgment becomes kind of clouded. <laughs> and going back to that that final ascent night, uh, where you're starting off at midnight, it is brutally cold. Like it is really cold because you're at altitude. You're basically hiking in in snow or glacier, right? And so it's extremely unpleasant. Um, and and quite a few people. I forget how many people were in our party. I want to say there was about nine of us and I think two or three turned back down and, and that's okay. You don't want to push it too hard. Um, but that resilience is almost becomes kind of where you're, you're marching forward slowly one foot in front of the other on autopilot, right? That's the way to do it. Like if you're overthinking it too much, you're going to talk yourself out of it. Uh, obviously you have to listen to your body and listen to your, your comfort level. If your lungs are starting to fill up with fluid, you want to head back down. But otherwise, you just have to kind of go on autopilot and just keep making steady progress. And in some ways, that's kind of a metaphor for startups, too. We've had multiple periods in our in Founder Suite's life where things were a grind, where, where customers hate us, where revenue is, you know, not steady like I want it to be. And you just kind of keep marching slowly ahead. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I think conversely as well, there are, I think there's a difference between maybe what you experienced in some of those uh, we'll tell them detours of founder suite. Yeah. But I think there's also moments where certain companies need to recognize, is this a blip? Is this a momentary thing or are our lungs quote unquote filling up with fluid and we're really being dragged down and, and, and we need to make very tough decisions. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's hard, right? It, part of that's trusting your gut. Part of that's, you know, looking at data as much as you can to really figure out, are we just having a tough month or tough quarter or has the whole market landscape shifted, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I will say I, I have a bias. I think many startups I know and founders I've known over 20 years of being involved in startups maybe give up too soon and or make a pivot too soon. I mean, I think any good startup just takes years of kind of grinding it out. And I think a lot of people will get into it, start something. The moment they hit a roadblock or the moment the road starts to get bumpy, they give up or they pivot. I've seen that story way too many times. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, I guess I'm on the bias of like, keep going forward. Um, but obviously if the whole, the whole market's changed and <laughs> yeah. you're, you're making buggies, you know, or, or well, it's, it's interesting because like, I, I always feel like it's this it's this odd juxtaposition of having this mindset of like making it happen today yeah. while at the same time knowing that you need to give yourself time to see the whole thing through because there's stuff today that you don't even know that you don't even know. <laughs> and, yeah. it, and it only is going to, that's only going to come with time. And I know in my own experience as an entrepreneur, that's what I've found. Like stuff I know today I absolutely did not know three years ago. And there were several points three years ago where I was like, should I keep doing this or not? And unless I had the mindset of like, yes, keep going, but then the patience to be like, it's going to I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to learn things along the way. I wouldn't be, you know, in a, in a much better place today because I've, 
I kept sticking with it and I just continued to learn and then take those learnings and apply them to the company. Yes, I agree. Let's talk about sort of your journey then in founders, right? So, you know, our topic today is building a successful investor pipeline. And I think you were probably the most eminently qualified person to talk about this, given the platform that you built. So if you could expand more on the brief introduction I gave about the platform itself, but also how did, how did you come up with this? What's the backstory there? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the backstory. Um, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, kind of knew from a, a childhood age I was going to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know what shape that would take, but then in college I got, I, I call it kind of lured away by the investment banking track. And so out of college, I went down the investment banking track and, and worked um, for a couple firms like Piper Jaffray and JP Morgan, helping companies raise capital. And, and that was interesting, right? Because I'd be working with entrepreneurs, a little bit later stage companies, companies raising B round, C round, mezzanine, pipes, even a couple IPOs. So it'd be later stage startups, but it was still, you know, working with startups and getting that energy. But then, but even, even, th- Throughout the whole time I was working in investment banking, having a dream job that people would sell their kids for, right? It's really hard to get into investment banking, but it's once you crack it, you're you're golden. You know, even though I was doing that and had this job, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I was even like trying to come up with ideas while I was on the payroll at JP Morgan of ideas I could start. And I really didn't have any good ideas. They're all dumb. I, I wish I could find that journal because I'm sure if I could go back and see all the stuff, they're like stupid dating dating apps yeah. or variations. I, on- do you still have a notebook? Because like I, I have a notebook in my backpack of just random. It's it's strictly a random ass ideas notebook. Uh, I love and there's it. stuff in that I'm like I can't believe I wrote that down. But like, do you still have your notebook? I would. I wish I did because I'm sure it'd be hilarious and. I feel dumb of all the dumb stuff in there. I, I don't it disappeared over the various moves, but yeah. Anyway, you know, working investment banking, like at some point had this idea, well, why don't I actually start a startup that is doing what we're doing here, which is helping companies raise capital. We're using Excel spreadsheets and we're using all this different junk, you know, to kind of manage the process. Um, why don't I build a startup that really solves this need and takes it on? And at the same time, you know, one of the epiphany moments was when Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz came out with a statement that software is eating the world, meaning every little industry, every vertical is going to be impacted, affected, or taken over by software. And that was really like, yep, I think he's right. And this space here, this this sort of fundraising, capital raising, investment banking world, raising money for startups, needs to have software for it. So that was sort of the, the epiphany. Um, and then, so what do we actually build? Well, we started with an investor CRM, which is like a, like a CRM, kind of like a HubSpot or Salesforce for managing an investor pipeline, all the investor contacts and prospects. And, and then we added an investor update tool for doing ongoing updates, like monthly, quarterly updates to investors. We added a pitch deck hosting tool, kind of like Docsend or Google Slides. We added um, an email tool for doing like follow-up emails at scale. Uh, we added um, a data room. That's our most recent addition is a virtual data room. So you, that's where you upload all your confidential documents and, and send it out to investors. And then we also have some other things like um, Founders Market, which are some deals on other products and a collection of like documents and templates for, for startups. So. Really, if you think about how fundraising works, we've got, oh, and I forgot to mention, oh, also a database of investors of close to 200,000 investors in this database. So if you think about how fundraising works, you know, step one is you build a target list. We've got a database for that. Step two is you putting these all in a CRM. Step three, you're doing the communication, sending out your pitch deck. As you're making progress and getting into due diligence, that's where you turn on the data room and start to share and track, you know, your confidential documents. So it's kind of just a step-by-step software for each stage of the fundraising process. Yeah. So let's talk about that, you know, those stages of the fundraising process now. So, you know, at Startup Hype Man, we work with companies literally every week on what their pitch should be. Now, let's say a startup has worked on their pitch. Where, like, when, when it comes to actually reaching out to investors, 
what's the the first thing you see most founders go horribly south on? Yeah. Um, two things that are related to each other. One is like not spending the time to really identify the perfect fit, the really well, well qualified investors for your startup. I see too many founders and we see this all the time on our platform. We try and figure out ways to kind of stop it or reduce it. But we see founders who want to, maybe they're in fintech and we've got say 5,000 investors in fintech. They want to just blast their pitch deck out to all 5,000. I'm like, no, you can't do that. We're not going to let you do that. And you shouldn't do that because it might sound intuitive. Let's just get our deck out in front of everyone and see which ones come back. But that, you know, has a lot of ramifications. I just had one founder right before the show. He's like, I've been flagged for spam. Like, well, I'm sorry. It's not our platform that did that. It's your practices. Your, you know, his emails aren't getting delivered now because he's spammed too many investors. So don't do it like that. Instead, you know, spend the time to really find the fintech investors that do seed stage in Chicago that, you know, um, focus on, on whatever your specific vertical is or niche, right? I mean, really highly qualified ones. The better you can kind of identify folks who are looking for your type of deal, the better your whole fundraising is going to go versus, you know, trying to pitch some um, late stage investor that does banking software. You clearly didn't do your homework if you're pitching that person, right? Yeah, you're both under the fintech umbrella, but you didn't do your homework. You're pitching irrelevant people. So that's step number one um, is, is finding the right people. And then, you know, really working that intro path. Um, and this is something that trips up a lot of founders is they want to just, we have contact information in our database. We have email information in our database. But even with that, I strongly recommend trying to work your way into an intro to every investor. And that could be looking on LinkedIn, seeing if you have any mutual connections, or even reaching out to founders that that investor has invested in, getting on a, a Zoom with them, picking their brain about that investor, and then asking for that intro. So it's always a, a connection path. And it really makes things go, go better. If you've done the research to build your qualified list of the best 200 investors and found an intro path into each one, your fundraising is going to go a lot better. On that note, the intro, I have heard some experts say, absolutely, never send a cold email to an investor. I've heard other experts say cold emails can definitely work. Where do you stand in that debate? Yeah, it's it's funny because there is no absolute hard truth. We have our own podcast called How I Raised It, where I've interviewed like 230 founders and a few of them, and they've all been fund, funded successfully. That's the whole point of the show. A few of them have use cold email as part of their strategy successfully. But let me give you one statistic. And, and I bring this up a lot. I was on a webinar with Uncork Ventures, which is uh, Jeff Clavier, very active seed stage investor. Um, um, and, and perhaps a very savvy wine drinker as well. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> very. But the, the question came up on his, they, they did a little podcast about what they're doing and, it was about fundraising and questioning about, have you ever invested in um, a startup that came through cold email? And he's like, yes, we have. We've done two deals that came in cold out of 760 deals over the last 10 years. Hmm. Right. So yes, it can work. The odds are quite low. Your statistic, you know, your, your probability of getting much reaction are quite low. Um, and the reason is, you know, investors are getting so many deals coming at them already from trusted sources that the cold email is often ignored or overlooked or, you know, just ignored basically. Now, having said all that, I have seen where founders really, you know, maybe they follow an investor on Twitter for a while. They really kind of engage with that investor. They understand what that investor is talking about, thinking about, looking for, and then they'll do a very, highly personalized custom email to that investor, a cold email, but it's really clearly personalized that, hey, I've, I watched your speech at, at Cannes or TED Talk, you know, whatever, 
And this is what we're doing. I think you'll find it interesting. I have seen that occasionally work. It's still, I think, harder than getting an intro. <laughs> so well, I think I think what's interesting about this is it is like I think the reason why the cold email hit rate is so low is because of the first thing you said in the previous question, which was people are just mass blasting yeah. messages out without any sort of targeting. And so naturally, I don't know if 4,000 of the investors you reach out to more than that are not even like within the domain that would be a company to invest in you, that's going to be a miss and not a hit. And this speaks to more and more the need to like, like I'm in the stance that cold email can absolutely work if you personalize it and if you do your research and you know it's the right target. Very similar to selling, right? And this is why I'm sure you agree, like one of the most important founder skills to have is understanding sales because I'm seeing a lot of parallels here in it being a, I mean, it's a, a sales process, at least in the outreach. Like the most successful cold emails are going to be the ones where you've done some research on the prospect and you personalize the email to their situation and and they they kind of appreciate that you've done the research and find a connection point. Can you t- can you give me your read on that sort of um, I guess comparison of the investor pipeline and, and reaching out to investors? Um, how do you see that comparing to the idea of building a sales pipeline? Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> COVID. I've got my COVID test in an hour. I'm very curious. Each minute of this podcast, we are less and less uh, uh, ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Going to just melt, melt down in about a minute. You know, fundraising is absolutely a sales process. I, I do a talk at a different accelerators and it's absolutely a sales process where uh, you are identifying a list of prospects or targets. You're getting in touch with them you're presenting your opportunity or your case, you know, and you're trying to move each prospect towards a yes or no decision, right? So it fits the sales playbook, you know, B2B sales, right? Uh, To a T, except for that intro part, right? I think sales, traditional sales has more of an appetite for the cold outreach, the cold call, cold email, whereas fundraising is a little more cloistered or, or, you know, guarded about that. So it is absolutely a sales process. And, you know, also you're, you're kind of tapping into other things, other dynamics of the sales process, like creating FOMO, <laughs> right? And this is even more important than in B2B sales, right? Because in, in fundraising, you're creating the FOMO, like I've got this hot deal. My startup is a hot deal and we're raising money now. And then it, we're done on May, May 31st. We're done. Whereas, of course, sales, if you're selling software or something, there's no like hard deadline. You, you still might create FOMO or, you know, whatever triggers to get people to act, but it's a little different. So, um, yes. Yeah, so many, many, many lessons from sales can be applied to fundraising. Um, and I think that's why I talk about just running a process, having a pretty methodical approach to it, you know, versus a scattershot approach. Is, is really important too. So. so let's talk about how we can be methodical then, because I think there's a lot of, I mean, as there should be, there's a lot of emphasis placed on securing that first meeting. Yep. Similar to selling, the first meeting is the introduction and the close is probably going to happen multiple meetings later. So at least in sales, I'll say this, like from a lot of experience, like as the seller, you have a lot of room to be like, hey, here's how, I, here's how I'd like to run today's meeting. How does that work? Yeah. For you? Does that sound good to you? Do you want to make any changes? Like you can set an agenda for them. Can you do the same thing with an investor? Or is an investor going to be like, what are you trying to do? What are you, what are you doing trying to tell us how to run our meeting? Yeah. It's funny because the answer to that depends on how much momentum you have for your deal. Mm. And, and once you get momentum going on your deal, then you literally can set the agenda, the timeline, everything, all the details, the hoops that must be jumped through by that investor. Before you get the momentum going, you're sort of at their beck and call in terms of how it plays out, right? So (laughs) it doesn't really shift depending on whether you have momentum or not. And momentum is a bit of a fuzzy term, right? You kind of know it when you feel it. When investors start to respond to you and even chase you a little bit, that means you've got momentum. <laughs> um, but but so how do we create momentum? Well, one way is to do what we already said, 
really put in the time to identify the 200 or so ideal fit investors, getting those intros, getting those intros all in a pretty condensed time frame. We One of the things we talk about uh, is this concept of calendar density, right? Where you're trying to pack your, your calendar full of meetings with all these investors. So you're, you're getting these intros, you know, around the same, same time frame. maybe you tranche it a little bit, but because obviously you can't do 200 meetings in a week, but you know, you're trying to pack in as many meetings as you can each day, each week. So that ideally you start to get that momentum going where you're finding a few investors out of that 200, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 15, 20 that are really interested. And, you know, ultimately one's going to put down a term sheet or you can really use that to, get everyone else to move along. So uh, that's part of what I mean by running a process is, you know, to summarize, identifying the 200 investors, getting the intros all in the same time frame, and then all the other stuff that happens, the pitch meetings, the, the follow-up calls, the reference checking, the due diligence, which is getting into all your details, your analytics, your financials, everything's moving quickly. Everything's moving quickly, right? You're never the bottleneck on any of this stuff. And that's what sort of generates this momentum. Does that make sense? It definitely does. And this idea of momentum, it, it makes a ton of sense for the um, for the, the capital raise process. And I think if we also think about product strategy, there's also momentum there. And that's where I want to just ask our listeners or talk to our listeners rather for a second about this idea of your product strategy, right? Like maybe you've, maybe you've built an app and that part kind of easy, right? You can get an app launched on the app marketplace, but then how do you maintain the momentum from there? Because making it stay afloat on the market, not as easy. If you didn't know about four in five apps launched in app stores get deleted after a single use. That's 80% harsh reality, but it's a true fact. So how do you thrive without a profound product strategy experience? How do, you, how do you maintain the momentum of your product itself? Well, luckily, you're not doomed to failure. You just need an experienced partner that can help you all the way through. So I want you to meet Mikito, the team of design, software development, and product strategy experts that have built over 150 successful products for both startups and enterprises. So it means they know how to work at the pace of, uh, of a startup trying to get to market and, 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 and fit in the market. But they also know what it's like to build the stability of an enterprise app, an enterprise product. So your, your product, your app might be next. And it might be next if you join forces with Mikito. You can learn more about getting your app not only launched, but staying afloat and gathering momentum in the market at Mikito.com slash hype man. That's M-I-Q-U-I-D-O dot com slash hype man. Mikito.com slash hype man. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we are with the CEO and founder of Founder Suite, Nathan Becker, talking about how to build a successful investor pipeline. So Nathan, that whole idea around momentum, can you talk through like the process of being able to get the, so there, there's getting the meeting, but then how do you ensure that you can still get the follow-up meeting? And, and again, I'll, I'll compare it to sales since we did make that comparison earlier, right? In sales, you really never want to just leave it to the other person saying, yeah, we'll talk internally and, and we'll get back to you. Uh, how do you make sure that doesn't happen here? Yeah, I, a couple things. Um, when you're actually in that meeting, whether it's you know in the investor's office or you're out for coffee or even on Zoom, you know, I, I tell founders, don't leave that meeting until you've said something like, hey, Raj, really great meeting you today. Really appreciate the time. Um, I love I love sharing my vision for Founder Suite and everything, all the traction we've we've built this far, and our vision for the future. I would love to hear uh, your interest level and what is your typical check size, and then what are next steps. And then I kind of push it back to you, you know. And a lot of times you will get a pretty generic answer of like, "Hey, next steps are." Um, we'll talk it over at our partners meeting. But you know, you're really you are trying to get if there's any interest in doing a next step at that meeting, right? If, if, if you can get, if you can pin down even a follow-up meeting or a, that's a, a good buying signal. Um, if you can actually schedule the follow-up meeting before you've left this meeting. Exactly. Yeah. If your response to me on that question is, Hey, 
let's set up a meeting with our other partners next Wednesday. That's a super strong buying signal from you to me, the founder, that you're actually interested in moving this forward. If you give me the more, hey, we'll talk it over and get back to you, you know, weaker, right? Um, so, and, and that's, you know, I've, I've seen founders try and have a real hard sales approach, like great meeting you. Let me know by tomorrow morning if you're, you know, <laughs> in or not, like kind of putting in these hard. And I don't know if that works that well. I mean, if you have enough momentum, if you have a really hot deal, hot space, your metrics are crazy. You can, you can be more aggressive like that. But um, oftentimes, you know, one of the things I think I heard someone on our, on our podcast say is fundraising is, is not actually a sales process. It's more a search for believers. You're trying to find those people who believe what you believe in terms of how the the future plays out. And so it will happen a little bit more organically. If you also had this share, you know, investors often will have a thesis about where blockchain goes or where the future of digital health goes. They have a thesis on that and they're kind of searching for startups that fit their their thesis. And so that's what it means by, you know, fundraising is a search for believers. You're kind of finding those places where they have a octagonal hole and you've got an octagonal peg and it just sort of naturally <laughs> goes. Yeah. So anyway, um, you know, I guess to summarize that, it just don't over worry about it because a lot of investors are going to ignore you, ghost you, tell you no for a bunch of dumb reasons that don't really have anything to do your business. But Make sure you're asking about their interest level and and what are next steps every time you meet with them. Simple as that. Would you recommend then, and, and I, I'll say this from a sales perspective, one of the things I often teach and do myself is uh, I, I want to secure, I want to get something on the calendar as a follow-up. Yeah. If there is some initial interest, they are usually happy to do that. If there's a little bit of, oh, I don't know yet, maybe they're interested, but they just have to go through their internal, whatever. I'll say, well, why don't we do this? Can we at least put a placeholder on the calendar for a follow-up meeting? And then as that date approaches, if there's not a need to have it because you've changed your mind, just hit the cancel button. I'll know exactly why. Uh, otherwise, at least, we, you know, at least, you know, if, if you do feel good, we don't have to go back and forth through email. Does that, does that sound good to you? Like, would that approach work well here too? I think it's worth trying. I think it's worth trying. Cause then again, you're, you're, pushing them a little bit gently into you're probing and, and making them play their or show their card, right? A little bit. If they don't want to do that, they're probably not really interested. If they're willing to take a placeholder meeting, then there is a little bit of a buying signal there, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think that would be interesting. It's a softer, gentler way of forcing them to show their card a little bit. Um, so I like it. I haven't tried that myself, but yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. You know, the other thing I've seen people do a little bit, and again, this helps if you have some momentum going, but again, in this pitch meeting with you, you're the investor and the founder where I'm saying, you know, thanks for your time today. I'd love to hear your interest. What are next steps? By the way, we're running a pretty tight timeline on this for the next two weeks. I'm taking first introductory meetings. And then two weeks after that, Everyone who's interested in, you know, digging deeper into our data room, uh, I want you to, you know, or, or maybe, you know, that would be the third one, whatever. And then, you know, two weeks after that is when we're asking for or seeking term sheets from everyone interested. So I've have seen some founders lay out a specific timeline um, where investors kind of have to opt in or opt out by certain yeah. dates, you know, and that that's sometimes pretty effective, I think. So I, I think that kind of gets into that whole like debate of how much leverage does a founder really have in these situations, right? Is can can you can you force a timeline on them, or is it is it safer to just perennially be taking intro meetings? Is it really a matter of momentum, as you've said before? I know, and this is what's hard about this is there aren't like these hard hard and fast answers to this. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you have if you have a hot deal, even before talking to investors, you know your deal is going to be hot because your metrics are screaming up and to the right. You're in a 
super hot space, metaverse, web three, whatever the, the buzzy okay. thing is at the moment, right? Um, then you have a little more leverage to kind of create that timeline. And of course, once you start to get, once you've started the process, start talking to investors and you start to get investors really getting interested, even before putting on a term sheet, then you can really create that timeline and, and you'll start to have the leverage, right? And then of course, once you get a committed investor, someone who wants to lead the round, you have a ton of, of leverage, right? So, you know, I, I'd kind of maybe tell founders to take a honest assessment of their situation, whether they're just beginning the fundraise, what the assessment would be, how hot do you think your startup is going to be when it goes out to market? <laughs> if you're in the middle of the fundraise, the assessment is, you know, what true buying signals? I've talked to 50 investors so far and 30 of them want to move into diligence and data room and term discussions. That's a lot of momentum, right? My leverage feels strong. Let's set this timeline and get this thing done, right? So, Speaking of lead investors, why, why is it that so many firms don't want to take lead? Because it seems like it'd be nice to be the firm that can set the terms for anyone who wants to get in on this round instead of being part of terms someone else has created. So why are so many... Their thesis is we won't go lead, or they just, if it's not their thesis, they typically don't take lead? That's a good question. And I'm not sure I have, because it feels like. like <laughs> I don't know, and I'm like, am I so naive that I'm like, wait, it seems awesome to be able to set deal terms. Why is no one doing this? Like, what am I missing? <laughs> There's more responsibility, you know, when you're the lead, right? You're setting the terms, you are probably taking a board seat. Whereas maybe if you're following on a deal, you're not taking a board seat. Uh, you also are responsible for leading due diligence, which is, you know, has some, I don't want to call it legal, but legal and fiduciary duties in there, right? So it's more work. It's more work to be a lead, I think. It's part of the problem. Um, and, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. more responsibility. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so understanding that, the, what's your stance on lead investor being just a good size check versus good size check along with strategic support? Yeah, good question. There's a lot in that question. Um, you know, this again, it kind of depends a little bit. So I, I would also tell founders to sit down there, do your, your yoga and, and meditate <laughs> on what they really need. What do I actually need? As a founder, do I just need money because I need to hire seven engineers and three salespeople? Or frankly, I need senior counsel on this. I need someone who's been there, done that because I haven't done this before. Maybe I'm a 22-year-old right out of college founder. And frankly, you need, you know, you need a lot of hand-holding and help. Or maybe you need um, you know, contacts to break into the the mobile carriers, whatever. I'm just making stuff up, right? But I would, I would do a pretty honest assessment of what you actually need. And then whether you need, you know, some, some firms are very hands-on, tactical. Like Andreessen Horowitz, for example, I don't even know their number, but they've built out this huge 100-plus services army, people who help with PR and accounting. And I don't even know what all they do, but it's this huge people who are non-partners, that help their portfolio companies, right? I'm not making an advertisement for them, but that's part of their, their pitch and value add to founders is they have this, you know, support staff that can help you, right? So do you need that or do you not need that, right? Um, and then I think also, you didn't really ask this, but there's also that branding element, right? If you get sure. a term sheet from Andreessen Horowitz or Benchmark or Kleiner Perkins, that has great signaling when you're trying to hire, um, you know, but at the end of the day, and especially talking to, like I mentioned, over 230 interviews with funded founders, a universal message is find the investor, the person, not the firm, the person that you have the best fit with, right? That's really going to be there and thick and thin. They have a great rapport with that you would want to go have beers with, not just have a working relationship, right? That's the most important because you've probably heard this you know, you're going to be kind of married to this mm -hmm. VC founder relationships last longer than the average marriage. That's an actual statistic. <laughs> so 
you know, think about it from that perspective. That's no, it's really, good or bad. <laughs> yeah, I know that's that is, but that's what you're optimizing for. That's time and time again. I think if you if you really boil it down, you're optimizing for that kind of founder VC connection fit, even even above terms valuation, firm branding, right? Yeah. So yeah. Two quick questions before we begin our wrap up, Nathan. A lot of times, a founder will hear from an investor. You know, uh, com- you got something interesting here, not a fit for us right now, or perhaps like we actually need to raise our own fund right now. So we're not we're not making any active investments at this moment, um, but keep us posted on your progress because we may be interested later on. A, is that them just being polite, or is that is that true that they do want to be kept posted and and they, and they may invest later on? And B, if 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 so, what is the best way? to nurture the investors, if you will? Yeah, great question. I love it. That is one of the most common ways investors say no without specifically saying no. Investors love to keep their own optionality open, right? Mm -hmm. When they say no, hard no to you, Raj, like I don't want to invest, you're done off the table. That door is closed for them. Because what if your startup six months down the road gets really hot, you know, <laughs> and starts to blow up? And I've told you no, I would look bad coming back begging to you to let me in. Right. So, so the you're too early. I like what you're doing, but you're too early is a no, a very common no, but it's keeping some optionality open. So I would really treat it as a no, but and accept that they're not really interested, but I would still nurture them. One of the things I'm telling founders to do every single day of my life is send out a regular company update about your business. And and we have a product for this in Founder Suite called Investor Updates, but it doesn't have to be super lengthy. It can be kind of a short one pager about what you do, your key wins last month or last quarter, your metrics, your key metrics and kind of what you're working on next and maybe any challenges you're having, right? That doesn't have to be even more than one page, but you send this out monthly or bi-monthly to both people who've written you a check um, and people that you want to nurture for that next round. And that could be, in that category, it could be new people you've built a target list. Maybe you've built a target list for your series A, you know, reach out to those folks, get their permission to add them to your target list or to to your distribution list for that update, start to send them and send that update to the people who in, in your seed round said no a little too early. So you're, you're really updating both of those groups and I've seen, it doesn't happen that much, but I have seen folks who say, no, you're too early, come back around in a later round if the, the traction has kind of grown. So it doesn't one hurt, thing right? I've also seen, yeah, and one thing I've also seen is I, because of the role I serve in the ecosystem, I am often on different startups, whether you know we've worked with them or or not. Um, I'm often put on their investor update um, distribution list, and I also frequently see asks that are put in there. And it's not like it's not. In fact, most of the time, it's not give us money. It's it's more like we're looking for a developer, please let us know if you know anyone, or we're looking for a contact in this industry to get an in. Um, do you think that can be a good way to actually activate an investor, even if they're not going to put money in, but to almost like have them be part of your ride, if you will, if, if, if they may know someone who they can introduce you to? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, you. first of all, you should be doing that with the people who did give you money. They have an equity stake in your business. They have a vested, you know, interest in the outcome of the business. Put them to work, ask for their help, and so so. Let me expand on this just a little bit. I actually have two different versions of my investor update. I have one that's for the people who've written me a check already, and it's much longer. It has more of our challenges, problems. It has ask for help, like we really need help on this stuff. And then ideally, it also has a little section where I'm thanking my investors who did help, right? If I asked for some specific intro to a designer or something last month, and then 
investor makes that intro, I actually thank that investor publicly in our update the next month, right? So it's a really good way of kind of activating your people. So those are people who have written you a check, but even the prospects who are on your target list, um, you know, having maybe a little bit easier ask, right? You wouldn't ask because they haven't put money into it. They wouldn't ask them for too much, but asking if anyone, and, and you'll see it's who's actually kind of following along, right? And if someone does pick up the phone, like makes an intro to someone, that's that's a great buying signal, right? Don't you want to work with people who even before they've written you a check are helping you with your business, right? right? right. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. You build up that, uh, that affinity early on. So then later on, they're going to feel better about entertaining an investment if they've already essentially helped your company grow in some way. Yeah, totally. Totally. One last question I've got before we begin our wrap up is around the idea. So let's say you, you've raised a round. Um, you know that you're going to probably raise another round, not immediately, but I don't know, six months, a year from now, maybe even two years from now. In that gap, after you raise your round to, and let's even push it out to say the far, let's say two years from now is when you plan to raise your next round. Yep. Um, are you still keeping all, are you still running those nurture things that entire time? Or are you really just like, maybe in the three months or six months leading up to the next round, is that when you're kicking it back in? Yeah, I probably wouldn't do it for two months unless there really are people that you felt a great connection with and you really- Two months, sorry, two months or two years? Yeah, so I would probably, so yeah, let me answer the question more specifically. I would probably start that nurture to the prospect list six to 12 months prior to raising money. Two years might be a little bit long. They might kind of start to tune you out, (laughs) you know? Um, But if let's say I pitched you for our, our seed round, you said a little too early, but I really do like what you're doing. Keep me in the loop. Yeah. You know, maybe I, I don't do that right away. And then a year later, I'm like, boom, look at, here's our progress in the last year. And you're like, holy crap, these guys made a lot of progress, right? I remember what their metrics were. Now look at where they are, you know? Um, And then I start you on that nurture campaign for maybe again, six to 12 months beforehand. One of the, my favorite little hacks I'll just leave with is let's say I start to nurture you six months in advance, uh, start sending you these updates and I send it in, you know, May, June, July, August, and I'm planning to raise money in September. Maybe in that August one, I say, hey, we're planning to kick off our Series A next month. Let me know if you want early access to our our pitch materials. And if you have been following along for those five or six months and you like our momentum and progress, you know, you want you you, you reach out to me asking for those pitch materials. I've seen deals that kind of get swooped up before even going out to market. It's kind of like the real estate market here in California where things are getting sold before they even go on the market because they've been sort of nurtured, right? And 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 of course, as a founder, that takes away spending the next six months fundraising if, you know, the deal gets picked up by your top five nurture prospects, right? right? Yeah, Beautiful. you short circuit that entire process yeah, on totally. the next time through. Okay, I know I said that would be the last question before I wrap up, but that that made me think of one more question I got to ask. Um, what's your opinion on, you know, keeping in the loop? Yes, the investor update is a great way to do that. Would you recommend also adding them to your just your general customer marketing newsletter, let's say, because maybe you've got a strong brand and you want to make sure they see what you're doing directly with the market? That's a good question. I haven't seen too much of that, but I think I don't know if this is a trend I've noticed over the years. But if I have an interaction with with someone, I'm suddenly on their customer. <laughs> it's yeah, usually without, without, without being asked. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think people are kind of used to that now. The only risk I can see in that is if they're getting a customer newsletter from you every week or every other week, and then your investor update once a month, maybe they start to tune out because they're just getting too much from you. And that's the only risk I can see. I actually do think there could be value in, you know, letting them see how your brand is shaping up and all that stuff. That's pretty interesting. So, so, yeah. Yeah, so then maybe one path to not oversaturate them is forward them specific ones that you want them to see, yeah. or maybe in the investor update, include a link worth checking like out that. our most recent, mm-hmm. you know, newsletter. Yeah. Something like that. I like that. I like that idea. Yep. 
Look at this. Let's begin our wrap innovating. Up. Yeah, I We're know. We're on the fundraising process. <laughs> this has been such a good conversation. Um, so, Nathan, where can our listeners find you and where can they learn more about Foundersuite? Yeah, so Foundersuite is simply foundersuite.com, F-O-U-N-D-E-R-S-U-I-T-E.com, foundersuite.com. Find us on Twitter slash Foundersuite, uh, Facebook slash Foundersuite. Um, I'd love to connect on LinkedIn. We put out a lot of, um, like, a lot of really good stuff for founders on LinkedIn once or twice a week. We'll post like 300 questions investors will ask or a sample term sheet used by Airbnb or just really good like giveaways and, and stuff for founders. So follow, follow or connect with me on LinkedIn, Nathan Beckard. Maybe just make a note that you heard about us um, on the Rogination podcast. So I kind of have a context because I get a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff coming in. And then I guess the only other thing is um, our podcast called How I Raised It, which is those interviews with founders, lots of fun stuff, really deep tactical stuff, like how to run a VC meeting minute by minute, you know, just really tactical stuff that I've learned a ton from. And that's how I raised it on Spotify, YouTube, and, you know, iTunes, all the usual places. So that's it. Who Who is one person who you want to shout out? You're not allowed to just say a generic team. Who's one person you want to shout out, whether that is a Coworker, co-founder, a mentor, a colleague, a friend. I'm going to shout out to John Frankel, who is the uh, the partner at our venture fund, venture fund FFVC, and I'm going to shout out to him because he he was our first believer, right? Remember, I mentioned fundraising is search mm-hmm. for believers, and he was our first believer, and you know, raising money even even though I had done fundraising for a while, I knew how to raise money. It was still really hard. And when you find that first believer who believes in you and says, yes, it's huge, right? It changes everything when you find that first believer. So shout out to John Franklin as our first believer. (laughs) We will now do our top one or two lessons or takeaways from the discussion or based on our discussion today for the listening audience. I'll go first, then I'll toss it to you. Our topic today was building a successful investor pipeline. There was so much good stuff Nathan shared in this. And I think the one like just tiny like thing I want to encapsulate is that your like raising around is not an event. It is a process. Therefore, know your process just as well as you know your pitch. Yep. Nathan, like top one or two lessons or takeaways. Top one or two lessons, I would say spend the time, invest the time doing the research to find your good target list. So many founders skip that. And then once you actually get in and start talking to investors, you know, make everything move fast. Your your goal, if you don't remember anything else from this talk, your goal is to get momentum going for your deal. Deals live and die by momentum. And so just put it in your brain build the list, start the process, reach out and get momentum going. And that will help you with negotiation, setting the timeline, getting the deal done, everything else. So your job, get momentum going. My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank, Nathan. Entrepreneurship is blank. (laughs) Can I swear? (laughs) Go for it. Yes. Uh, I was gonna say it's shit show. It's it's a sausage. It's a sausage factory, meaning like if you peel behind the you know the end product is is great. It's delicious if you if you're a meat eater. You know it's great. It's it's wonderful. But if you peel back the the covers and see how it's made, it is ugly and chaotic and messy and gross and <laughs> and you know. And, and nuts. And that's just the way it is. Like you, you read these glamorized articles in TechCrunch about startup XYZ that did this, but you peel back the covers on real startups. It is messy. It's hard. You know, I started with black hair. Now I have gray hair in a matter of a couple of years. I've aged tremendously in <laughs> six or seven years of doing a startup. Um, but it's so much fun. It's so much fun too. So that's it. <laughs> Entrepreneurship is a sausage factory. <laughs> That's probably the most original answer I think we've ever gotten to that question. He is Nathan Beckard, founder at Founder Suite. Thank you so much for joining us today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, Nathan. And for all you listeners out there, 
stay in touch with our, in our content ecosystem, either staying subscribed to this show or subscribing to our point of view letter because dropping soon later this year is Startup Hype Man, the mixtape, official title pending, but the first ever hip hop album dedicated to the founder journey. We've been working on some tracks in the recording studio on that. I'm very excited to release that. So stay in touch with what we're doing to get Startup Hype Man, the mixtape. Again, official title pending, but uh, a, a, a literal soundtrack dedicated to founders. Thank you again, Nathan. Thank you. I love it. I love it. I'll put me on the list for the, the soundtrack. I love it. <laughs> Got it. Thanks, Rod. That's a wrap on this one. Shout out to our guests once again for sharing their story with us. If what you heard impacted you, do one of three things. One, let our guests know. Reach out to them directly. They love hearing from you. Two, leave a rating and review on Apple. Or three, simply hit the share button and share this episode with one friend who you think would benefit from hearing it. Catch our full episode archive at startuphypeman.com slash podcast. And if you want to make your pitch not suck, reach out to us through the website. That's all for this week. We'll catch you next time. Raj Nation out. Believe the hype.